I'm Lizanne Flynn. I'm a master healer who works with all earthlings to reunite them within themselves and with each other, regardless of the dimension they're currently in, meaning I'm a medium as well as an animal communicator, medical intuitive, and channel for all beings. I use the tools of shamanic journeying and soul retrieval to support animals and humans as they heal from past trauma. I'm certified as a Reiki master teacher and as a canine massage therapist. This is the Animals I View podcast. There's a phrase that you may have heard used by some indigenous people's groups, and that phrase is all my relations, meaning all beings, regardless of planetary experience, are considered to be family in much the same way as member of your own species, meaning a brother, a sister, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, of mother, father, etc. It's basically no difference. And I really love this quote by Chief Dan George. One thing to remember is to talk to the animals. If you do, they will talk back to you. But if you don't talk to the animals, they won't talk back to you. Then you won't understand, and when you don't understand, you will fear. And when you fear, you will destroy the animals, and if you destroy the animals, you will destroy yourself. And I think it's clear that even in the case of ancient indigenous peoples, where they harvested from the land animals from time to time, certainly plants, that there was a partnership relationship that was established so that they understood and were in gratitude for being in partnership with these other beings in animal experience. And there was an honoring of the giving and the receiving relationship and between family members of these particular groups. And I think, of course, as far as food supply on the planet where beings in human experience are concerned, the factory farming just really flies in the face of honoring that relationship of balance, of predator and prey between species. And I think, of course, that's what beings in human experience miss all the time. When we view or witness a predator-prey relationship among the animals, we tend to say, oh, that's really awful, and we feel very sorry for the prey, etc., etc. But as I've often talked about, we miss the partnership. We miss the fact that, for instance, when Bobcat chooses to ingest a fawn, Bobcat is actually choosing to be part of fawn, and fawn is actually also choosing then to be part of bobcat. And that's truly the way that animals look at it. So here we are with what is, at least from my perspective, admittedly a pretty screwed up relationship with all the other species on the planet. 
And the really interesting thing is that everyone has their own world in which they live. In mine, it's completely normal to speak with animals. I don't think I had the experience with Hawk that I'm going to share with you now when I posted the last podcast. And if I did, and if I'm forgetting, I do apologize. It was on one of my walks around the favorite lake area that I go to that borders a cemetery, interestingly enough. (laughs) Talk about your juxtaposition and a wildlife refuge. And I think it was, I don't know, probably around noon. It was a beautiful day here in Colorado. And I thought, oh gosh, these winter days where one can get out and really enjoy everything that nature has to offer. And so there I was walking around. And sometimes I listen to a podcast or music when I'm walking around. There are other times that I don't do that. And even if I'm listening to a podcast or a music, I'm really looking around for any kind of being an animal experience that wants to share themselves with me. And so it was that I was walking along. Lots of people were out that day, again, because the weather was so nice. Walking along, I happened to look up and kind of at a distance, because of course, this was a pretty good size hawk. I thought, hmm, that's definitely probably a raptor. And the closer I got, indeed, in fact, it was a raptor. I cannot tell you what species, whether, I know for sure it wasn't kestrel, because kestrels are pretty small. I don't know whether it was Swainson's. I don't think it was a red-tailed hawk. But anyway, I digress. And it was standing perfectly still on this branch that really was, I don't know, maybe probably 10 maybe 12 feet above the path, the cement path that I was walking on. And again, lots of people walking along underneath, talking, chatting, etc. Nobody noticed talk. There were a couple of other people who noticed, but there we were. And so when I first connected with Hawk, I said, do you have a message for me? And the words that came back in kind of a staccato type fashion was hunt, hunt, hunt. And in that moment, I knew that Hawk wasn't sharing themselves with me because of me, again, (laughs) fairly human-centric worldview, but Hawk was in the middle of hunt. And about 15 seconds after I heard the words, hunt, 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 this beautiful hawk spread their wings, just huge wings, swooped down from this branch and landed, I don't know, probably 10, 15 feet off the path. And was there for probably another 10 or 15 seconds. I could see the head moving up and down. I could see the wings kind of sheltering uh, whatever prey that it had happened to capture. And even in that moment, I understood that Hawk was in partnership with whatever prey that it had gotten. And it wasn't that I had interrupted their hunt. It was that I had been witness to the hunt. I had a similar experience with Owl, probably, I don't know, maybe a week, week and a half after that. I happened to be coming home from the vet with one of my kitties who needed to have a body part looked at. (laughs) And so we were coming home from the vet and the same area, I happened to look over even while I was on the road. And there up in the branches, easily visible at this time of year, given the fact that there are no leaves on the trees, was owl. I knew for sure that even at a distance it was owl because 
the head was pretty much molded onto the shoulders, quite large. And even at a distance, as I connected with and sent a greeting to Owl, Owl turned their head and watched me drive down the rest of the street. I often think to myself, it seems like I live in a world that pretty much has magic everywhere. And I know that magic, just like the Shakespeare quote, is, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And certainly there are probably other beings in human experience that have magic in their lives, but they have a different perspective of magic. My compass seems to be oriented toward the magic that I perceive is presented to me all the time by beings in animal and plant and crystal experience. And for today, when I wanted to focus on all my relations, I chose animals representing the diversity of animal experience on the planet, mostly to show their shared family design. Because I think perhaps when we look at the animals, we think, well, these, this animal lives on the land, and this animal lives in the water, and this animal actually lives uh, on both. Physically, they could not be more different than each other. But when you look underneath the surface and kind of peel back that layer, you will see that their family designs are actually quite similar to each other. And there are links that I'm going to be putting into the podcast notes that I'll be quoting from. So we'll start with elephant. Elephant families have a matriarchal head, meaning that an older, experienced female elephant leads the herd. A family member usually consists of a mother, her sisters, daughters, and their babies. We refer to those as elephant calves. And occasionally, non-related elephants join to form families. Female family units range from 3 to 25 elephants, although they can grow larger than that. They babysit for each other, and they bond deeply within their own group and across groups that may be related to each other. Herds of elephant bulls have a hierarchical structure with the strongest and most experienced elephants leading and protecting the group. When a bull is ready to mate, he will pursue an elephant family until he selects a female and she accepts his advances. Once he is mated with an elephant cow, he will either return to his herd or resume his solitary experience, leaving the cow to rear the calf by herself. I know that there is significant evidence about the ability and the sentient quality of elephants to deeply bond with each other. I think the matriarchal structure is most definitely on purpose, if you will. And we all know that elephants grieve deeply for each other. And even when they come across the bones of elephants that may not have been related to their particular family group, they are known to pause and to run their trunks over the elephant bones and to, in this way, honor perhaps a distant relative. And certainly, I think another elephant that they would see as all my relations. Orcas form very close and complex relationships with, with each other, not dissimilar to elephants. And 
one thing that sets them apart from other mammals in their social lives is that they stay with their mothers their entire lives. Again, like elephants, orcas are matrilineal and the eldest female in, is the leader of her group of whales. Her female descendants all travel in the group with her. Several families form pods if they are loosely related. Pods consist of usually four or five families. Families always stay together, but pods may drift apart and then regroup for weeks or months. So it feels like it's kind of a loose embrace of everybody that's related to you. Just like pods are made up of families, clans are made up of pods. Clans are made up of pods that share an older heritage. Clans also share a dialect. Orcas from different areas and families speak differently, not dissimilar than humans, both in the number and pattern of the calls they make, and clans are determined based on these dialects. Clans make up communities which are determined by typical range rather than relation or dialect, and clans in a community do not have to speak in the same way as another which I also found really, really interesting that these clans can exist peacefully with each other, but they don't mandate that, hey, you're in this particular geographical area, and so now you have to speak the same dialect that I do. Moving on to penguins. A common misconception about penguin parenting, instigated by polar explorers in the 1960s, was that penguins regularly deserted their chicks. It was believed that they deliberately starved their chicks in order to force them to leave the breeding colony. This was founded on observation that the chicks of king penguins weighed more than adult birds and lost this weight prior to fledging. This desertion theory was subsequently generalized to other penguin and seabird species such as albatrosses which could not have been further from the truth. <laughs> Far from deserting their young, penguins are super parents. Compared with most seabirds, penguins have a very long pre-fledged duration from 66 days in the Adelie penguin to a staggering 15 month to a staggering 15 months in the in the king penguin. Penguin parental care can be divided into two periods. During the guard phase, penguin parents brood the chicks intensely. The female often returns to the seed of forage during this period, which can last up to 37 days. In the next phase, the chicks form tight groups or creches as they're called. For king penguin parents, each fledgling represents a huge investment. They first breed when they're about three years old. The parents spend one summer and two winters raising their young. The chick's weight loss, as observed by the explorers, can be explained by fluctuations in food availability, and likely so even more so now. King penguin chicks pile on the calories, lay down fat deposits, and balloon to their maximum weight at four months old. A second peak occurs around 10 months. This enables them to survive long periods without food when their parents are foraging. King penguins are serially monogamous with both parents sharing all hatching and rearing duties. They cannot raise a chick every year, which explains why eggs, as well as quite large chicks, can be seen at the same time in king penguin colonies. 
And I think it's so interesting that what these species all have in common is a lack of belief systems that mandate they act in a certain way around their young, or that they raise their young in a certain way other than what is best for the species overall as a group. They don't have any belief systems that say any differences in the way they raise their young can be criticized or judged by other species. They don't have any belief systems that say you must interact in the world around you using only these languages, and the way in which you interact with the world around you must be proven right by a majority of other species. They don't have any belief systems that say how other species live or the color of the fur, the feathers, or the skin is wrong. They are simply totally invested in the raising of their young in whatever way resonates with the wisdom of their ancestors passed down from generation to generation and in accordance with planetary equity for available resources given every moment of every day to all beings in earthly experience. The really amazing thing is that they leapfrog over all of these external physical experiences. Why? Because they know that they're temporary. They know that this is a temporary suit, that I, as a light being from another place in the galaxy, chose to put on when I agreed to come to this planet for this experience. And so they they tend to look beyond that. They tend to understand and deeply connect with the partnership that is available to all beings in whatever experience you happen to be in here on planet Earth. It is only our species that hyper-focuses on the diversity, and we actually use it as a tool to set ourselves not only apart from other members of our very same species, but also all the other species on the planet. We're missing the magic. We're missing the partnership. And at least how the animals see it, we're missing out on quite a bit. Thanks for listening today. Leave a review if you're so inspired and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. I offer all new clients a free 15-minute consultation. Reach out if you think I can be of service via www.lazanflynn.com. Come and find me on social media, Facebook, Twitterverse, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I invite you to sign up for my quarterly newsletter on my website, where I also post notices for upcoming events, such as new classes and online psychic fairs. This has been the Animal's Eye View podcast. I'll see you next time.